Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. tell all we are your friendly neighborhood semi-neighborhood uh dc tour guides with you to talk about all things fun and exciting and history and scandal and um wonderfulness uh as always i'm rebecca i'm becca and together we are the The rebecca's and we're back fam it is march we are here. This is March's Women's History Month. If you've been t- doing our podcast, which, by the way, this month is celebrating its third birthday. Um, our Aww. podcast is going to preschool now. It's really exciting. We're three nagers. I know. We're three nagers. Uh, March is Women's History Month. And as we always say, Becca, what do we always say? We always say women's history is American history. American history is women's history. So um, if you listen to our podcast, you know that we don't relegate talking about women simply to March, but it is a chance to acknowledge that it's Women's History Month. There's a lot of wonderful events and programming taking place throughout the city of D.C., both in person and virtual. So be sure to check out our website, dcbyfoot.com. We uh, always put up a blog post every year about what's going on for Women's History Month, but it's a chance for us to kind of focus in on women, but we do that all the time. We love to focus on women. And we also want to give a shout out to one of our um, our fans, friends of the pod, the uh, tour of her own. They give women's history tours around the nation's capital. So we are big fans of them and they seem to be big fans of us. And they do a lot of really great work highlighting women's stories and sort of elevating the idea of women's history being part of the nation's history and the city's history and sort of how that integrates uh, into the wider conversation. So they are rad too, but there's a lot going on for Women's History Month and and we are excited to be back with you. We have two great episodes that we're going to talk uh, lots of women's history. And who are we going to talk about today, Becca? Today, and I'm super biased, I'm really excited about this topic because we're going to talk about a Texan, which if you listen to the podcast, you know that is where I am from, um, named Ovita Culp Hobby. If you have traveled to Houston, Texas, you may know Hobby Airport. There is a little overlap there. This is a big name. Hobby, if you spend some time really in Texas, you've probably seen the name Hobby. Yes, she's that hobby. Uh, Mary's that hobby. But Avita Cole Hobby is a fascinating woman. I think if most people know her, they know maybe one aspect of her career, whether it was maybe uh, her political career, maybe it was her military career. They don't realize that she really, in an era where women were still primarily relegated to kind of being home, she was a kind of 
glass breaker in a lot of different areas and a lot of different industries. What is so fascinating about her and about trying to build this podcast is she did not write or talk about herself very much in her life. And actually in her lifetime, she discouraged biographies and articles that were written about her by others. So in kind of a twist, this was like, we often talk about figures that are very interested in telling their story and promoting their own legacies. And she's kind of the opposite of that. And so it was fun to kind of piece this together, primarily through the generation of women that she inspired. You'll see in our show notes that a couple of our links are to biographies that were written by some women of note in Texas. Um, I'm going to drop in some YouTube clips as well from a, a couple of women's museums and organizations. But we sort of pieced together a little bit about her. But there are some things that we really don't know because she was hesitant to really write about her personal life, especially in her, her feelings on things. So I'm really excited to dig in. And then at the end of the, the podcast, we'll talk a little bit about where you can see some hobby related stuff in DC. So she is born Ovita Culp, C-U-L-P Culp in Killeen, Texas, right at the beginning of the 20th century. She's born in 1905. Uh, her father's a lawyer. He's a legislator in the state legislature. So she grows up around politics. She is very, very interested. In a kind of unusual twist, her father really encourages her personal interest in law and government affairs. So she is given the opportunity to drop by his office. She basically comes by every day after school and then after work. She would read every book in his personal library. And eventually she just starts regularly skipping school to attend sessions at the state house. So you can imagine how unusual this would have been, this young woman in the 19-teens kind of popping by to learn about state politics kind of firsthand. But her father was really her champion and believed that she had a good brain and a good head for politics and law. She does attend college and law school, but she actually never in this early time period ever sort of finishes school. And you can probably guess why. When you're skipping school all the time to go to the state legislature, it's a little hard to graduate with your degree. So she's very bright, but the, she's not going to get a law degree at this time. She actually starts her first real job as a parliamentarian in the Texas House of Representatives. She starts this in her early, very early 20s. And this is a job she has for six years. So she is the parliamentarian. This is a really important role. We have a parliamentarian in Congress. We have it in our state legislatures. They're like the conductor. They got to keep the trains running and make sure that everything falls within the purview of the rules of the governing body. So it's a really, really important job. If you're a fan of Robert's Rules of Order, like myself, um, you are all about parliamentary procedure. She ends up uh, clerking in a number of different areas in Texas state politics, including for the State Banking Commission and for the House Judiciary Committee. So not too surprisingly, she thinks, OK, I have been parliamentarian. I've clerked. I understand the work of these committees. I'm going to run for office. But she is not successful in her run for the state legislature. I think we can guess why maybe a woman in Texas in the 1920s, 30s isn't exactly winning elections. It's because there are almost no women in Texas politics and very few women in American politics at this time. And she's also super young, too. Like, I can imagine that didn't help. And she's very lovely. That's going to become a theme throughout her sort of public career. She's a very lovely woman. And I just can imagine that not playing particularly well in the, in the 1920s uh, in Texas. Uh, she actually works for the parliamentarian before she could vote herself. So she can't like vote for what the legislators who she's like essentially corralling uh, around the Texas State House, which is amazing to me. She is going to 
Well, she doesn't meet. She meets him very young. They're her family. Their families are connected. Uh, but in 1931, she marries William P. Hobby. William Hobby was a well-connected widower. Their families had been friends for a long, long time because their Hobby had been lieutenant governor and then governor of Texas before they get together. Uh, and so they're, her father's in, involved in politics. She's involved in politics. They know each other kind of around politics. And he's a widower. And uh, he's done being governor. He's at this point going to be, uh, he returns to publishing. Uh, he's president of the Houston Post. He's going to uh, eventually own the Houston Post company. And he's acquires like radio and TV stations. So he's kind of on the upswing. He's in the media and they fall in love and they get married. Now, here's the thing. She's 26 years old and he is 53. Bit of an age gap there. Which is a lot of years. A lot of years there. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, they're very extremely happy together, though. I will say they have two kids, William Hobby Jr. and Jessica. Both are born on her birthday. So she has both her kids on the same day, which happens to be her birthday, which you don't get more organized than that. <laughs> That's fantastic to me. I love that detail just jumped right out at me. Yeah. And so you can sort of imagine there's this bit of a gap, but the two of them connect. William P. Hobby is not a man that suffers fools. He's not going to marry a woman that isn't bright. And she absolutely is, right? She's exceptionally intelligent. She understands politics. She was always very interested in journalism and writing. And so to marry a man who's building essentially a media empire. When we say he's getting into TV, truly, literally at the dawn of television, he starts buying licensing and stations. He's going to have a monopoly on radio in huge swaths of Texas. So it's going to position them financially very well. But it also means that they're helping to shape a lot of the political narrative of Texas during the Great Depression, during the 1930s. She is going to hold a number of positions within the Houston Post newspaper and the Houston Post media company that he owns. She'll be the paper's vice president, then president, then she's publisher, and she co-owns it. So we're talking about, again, an era where women are not in publishing. This is 30 years before Catherine Graham is going to publish the Washington Post. And you've got this woman who's just really there day to day. She's credited with making important improvements to the Houston Post, including giving greater prominence to women's news, including society news, writing about fashion, about women's charitable efforts, women's groups. And she really encourages the paper to hire women to write and work. It's the Great Depression. Women need economic opportunity. And she says, who better can write about women's concerns than women? So, you know, articles on child rearing and education and topics that would matter to a lot of Texas women. She is very engaged in Houston politics and civic engagement. There's not a group or organization to which she is not on the board or a chairman or often president. And again, this is the 1930s. The country is facing its worst economic crisis. Houston is going to experience a major flooding event in 1935. So that's a big element to the Great Depression are these economic, are these um, ecological disasters that are happening throughout the country. After this major flood, which really reshapes Houston, its layout, um, a lot of the economics of it, she is going to be the only woman chosen to be on this new task force that is formed to help develop a flood plan and basically help reposition Houston not to be at the mercy of every major flood. Uh, she'll be the chairperson of the mobilization of human needs during the Great Depression, where she's essentially tasked with organizing food and supply distribution to those in need. So she really sees the impact of the Great Depression up close, even though she is, of course, 
exceptionally wealthy through her marriage to William Hobby. She's going to chair the Texas branch of an advisory group that is established to increase women's participation in the 1939 World's Fair. So she's going to be kind of on the Women's Committee. We've talked about similar committees for other World's Fairs. And then she serves on the Texas State Committee for Human Security. This is a group that was dedicated to helping needy children access medicine, food, and supplies. This experience is going to be key to her later political career. Um, The fact that she has experience connecting with doctors, connecting with families, getting things like medicine and food out into the hands of people who need it. This is going to be experience that will be very, very helpful as her political career goes on. And so she's, so her husband's Democrat, she's Democrat, Texas Democrats. Her husband had actually known and supported Franklin Roosevelt before he knew and supported Oveda. He was a big fan of FDR way back when he runs for vice president in the 1920s. They had been major fundraisers for FDR. They're going to invite them to Texas several times. And in fact, first they support uh, John Nance Garner for the nomination in 1932, Texas Jack, but then are very happy to support FDR. They're going to invite FDR to, um, when he, FDR runs for re-election in 1936, he is in Texas dedicating the San Jacinto Monument. The hobbies are both there. And then the next, and Ovita actually positions herself to talk with Eleanor for quite a long time. They're on a boat trip and they kind of get to chatting and they take a real liking to each other. And then the next day, Ovita and her husband are in a plane crash. Their plane goes down. Ovita is largely unhurt, but their plane is in flames and she actually has to pull her husband out of the wreckage of this plane. Uh, And it's this huge deal. It makes the news. And she gets this very lovely telegram for Eleanor Roosevelt talking about, you know, her sacrifice and thanking her very much uh, for being such a strong supporter uh, and all that. They're turned off to FDR by the court packing scheme in his second term. And so actually for his 1940 re-elect, they're going to support Wendell, Wendell Wilkie but when FDR wins, they go back, they rush to support him again, call on all Texans in public, in their newspaper to support the president and support the United States sort of as we're ramping up towards the Second World War. So they're very well connected. She's friends with Sam Rayburn. She's friends with uh, Nelson Rockefeller. In fact, he will later on be her deputy um, uh, a little later on in her political career. She also knows Lyndon Baines Johnson from back in the day. He, spoiler alert, will become a big deal later on. Uh, so she, they're very well connected. She is going to be, as the war starts, as the United States gets into the war, I should say, the war is already happening. <laughs> Uh, But as the United States is going to get into the war, and even before they ramp up, she's going to be tasked to run Army Public Relations. She heads the (laughs) Women's Interest Section of the War Department's Bureau of Public Records. And what basically this means is the Army needs a woman to communicate with other women, because the Army at this time is all men. And they're recruiting all men. And these men that they're recruiting to, we haven't even gotten into the war yet, they're leaving behind wives, mothers, sisters, sweethearts, etc. And they're wondering, why are we ramping up and sending our boys when we're not even in a war yet? And so they need a woman to basically sell this to the American people. And that's essentially what Ovita Kulpabi does. She's going to become essentially their public face and head a lot of their public relations. She's hesitant to take a job this point, she's got young kids. In fact, her youngest is like six or seven at this point. And she doesn't want to be away from her children and her husband. But her husband, who, again, is elderly and so too old to fight once we get into the war, he tells her that he will support her at home and that, quote, every one of us is going to have to do whatever we are called on 
to do. So basically her husband basically makes the patriotic pitch that you've been called to serve. That's what you need to sort of go to Washington uh, to do. Yeah, it's sort of a remarkable story because both she and her husband will, you know, at times support other candidates. At times, of course, they'll have their favorites, but they always come back around to supporting FDR. And particularly as it becomes clear, the U.S. is going to get into this war. It's just a matter of if, not when, or a matter of when, not if. They are very ardent supporters of answering that call, right? You do what you're asked to do for your country. And the fact that her husband, again, this is 1940s, that her husband's like, you've been asked, you've got to go. We'll figure it out. I'll worry about the kids. I'm not going to be able to go. He knows he's not going to get called overseas. So it's like, you need to go do this. It's really, I think, a beautiful peek into their marriage and their relationship and certainly his belief in her ability, but also the real patriotic pull that both of them felt that you have to serve when asked. Her initial salary for her wartime work was $1 per year. Uh, This is not a case, uh, however, of just like blatant misogynistic pay to, uh, inequity. This is a woman of wealth saying, I would have done it for free, right? They don't need the money. They don't need government money. I think it's a good illustration too of just how above board they wanted this to be. We have touched on in previous episodes, particularly our Truman episode, about people who do try to pad their own pockets during World War II. That is not the hobbies. And in fact, she rejects really any chance to make any money out of her government service if she can avoid it. So she's initially tasked for this kind of like PR role, which makes sense. She's got a a newspaper background. She's clearly a good communicator, good writer. We're going to do this. But here's the thing. This is, we're going to war, guys. And all these men are going to go fight and there's a lot of jobs in wartime that have to be filled and women are gonna are gonna have to be filling them so almost immediately she gets shifted over to become director of what was initially called the women's army auxiliary corps which was whack with two a's but later it's just shortened to the women's army corps whack with one a so we're just gonna call it the wax to make things a little bit easier She works with the creep to form this. Like she works with uh, Representative Edith Norse Rogers, who is a Democrat from Massachusetts, to essentially create this. They cre- they write the bill together. They testify in front of Congress uh, about this. Norse Rogers will recommend Hobby to head it up. She also has the very critical support of General George Marshall. So he knows Hobby and is going to support her very publicly. WAC is created. However, at first it passes through Congress as an auxiliary which means that there are no benefits for the women and no equal pay. Yay. So it doesn't matter to Ovita particularly because she's wealthy, but a lot of the women who are filling these roles are not. So this is initially, we're right off the bat, a little of inequity. And she also is going to deal with a lot of sexism. The media is going to make much of her. Um, She's young at this point. She's not even 40. And she's kind of a pinup. We'll put pictures of her in the show notes. And they're going to go to like, whatever event it is she's hosting. And at one point they go to this event and they want her to pose in a swimsuit. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know it's terrible. Rather than this very serious like wartime work that she's doing, organizing women for the war effort, they want her to pose for them in a swimsuit. And the army is like, no, (laughs) like this is not a thing that's going to happen. We have standards. We have rules on what you can wear. Um, To kind of illustrate just a little bit too about when we're talking about starting up a group like this from scratch, there had been no real government sanctioned military roles for women. 
on this level before. So no one really knew what this would look like. The initial plan, kind of the first idea that kind of comes out from some of the army bigwigs is like, oh, we're probably going to need about 10,000, 11,000 women. FDR goes, oh, maybe we need like, maybe we need like 25,000. Ultimately, it's going to be about 150,000 women that will be recruited to serve as wax. So first of all, even from the get-go, they don't really even understand how big this is going to become. They don't really even know. They're sort of talking broadly about women serving in roles, what kind of roles. So this is really going to be Ovita Culp Hobby's mission is to define what this group is, what roles are these women going to fill, how do we train them for it, how do we make it worthwhile for them, and how do we make sure they get the benefits and the pay that they deserve. The wax were the very first women other than nurses to wear the U.S. Army uniforms, and ultimately they were the first women to receive full military benefits through the GI Bill. The initial list of tasks, we'll call them tasks or jobs, that WAX could perform. They got a bunch of military guys together and they said, write up everything you think a lady can do. And they came up with 54 tasks. And basically, I mean, 54 was the full list. And on the list are things like answer phones. It's really basic. There were really kind of just like three jobs. It was switchboard operator, mechanic and then bakers, which was pretty much just, you know, dealing with food and, and kind of uh, logistics as it were. Ultimately, though, Hobby is going to encourage the men in the U.S. Army to think a little bigger, think a little bit more broadly. And ultimately, they come up with 230 roles that women can serve, which feels a little bit more appropriate. And many of these roles will involve being much more engaged on the ground, doing the kind of tasks that we associate with wartime. So she is so vital in just even helping the army understand that women can do this. And not only can they, they will excel at it. And women were eager to do this. Thousands of women volunteer for this. This is all volunteer recruitment, right? We don't draft women into the wax. Um, so these are everyday American women who want to do their part. And she's got to figure out too how to integrate them into this masculine army culture. She has to figure out how to develop the WAC program in such a way that these women would be above reproach. She is very, very aware of how, based on her own experience, how the press is going to treat these women. And so she has very strict rules about what the images that they are to portray and what their reputation should be. So it's a really, uh, a really tough gig. She would joke that she never learned how to salute properly and she could not walk a 30 inch stride. But because of her gifts for oratory and recruitment, she could be at least personally responsible for this incredible group of women who would excel as wax. So she'd be the first to say she was never good at being in the military. <laughs> she couldn't do all those things, but she could definitely help other women do it. And she also knows that she's like this core that she's building is going to be the blueprint for expanding women's roles in the future. That if this doesn't work out, if this goes south, then it's going to set women and their roles in the military back a ways and sort of prevent them from continuing to expand. She starts out as a major, so she's an officer, and then she gets promoted to colonel. And so as colonel, this is why she's called the colonel, um, she is, uh, as colonel, they actually talk about promoting her towards the end of the war to general but there's a veto someone vetoes the bigger promotion and why did they do that Becca? i'm gonna assume because of uh, sexism but yeah you would be correct yes <laughs> i'm gonna assume the was. idea of having a woman with that rank yeah general can't have that now ruffle ruffle some feathers 
She does receive the Distinguished Service Medal for her efforts and is the first woman in the Army to receive this award. So that's kind of a big deal. She resigns a commission shortly after VE Day and goes home. And she remains a major supporter of veterans and veterans' causes, and particularly women in the military, for the rest of her life. However... She is going to ruffle some feathers in Houston when she co-chairs the Army Forces Day events and declares that no celebration will be held if it is not open to everyone who served, regardless of race, which I can imagine in Houston in the 40s and 50s was an interesting proposition. Yeah, it's sort of, she remains, and understandably so, exceptionally close to World War II veterans, both women who had served in the WACs and the men who had served abroad. But she is also opposed to segregation. She's a large outspoken supporter of the integration of the armed forces, which happens after World War II. And she will, throughout the rest of her life, when she often spearheads veterans events, insist that they be fully open to all that served, regardless of race and gender. And I think that just speaks to sort of um, the vision that she had for this country. Now, this would be enough reason to just talk about her, to form, to lead, form, create the wax, to be an important part of that legacy, I think would be testament enough. I don't know if people always realize this, but the wax go beyond World War II. They don't disband until 1978. And the only reason they disband is by the late 70s, we're starting to fully integrate all units, right? All units of the armed forces. Women are now serving just in all these roles alongside men as well. Um, is the only reason the WACs disband. But WACs serve in the Korean War and the Vietnam War. So I think a, a huge reason for that, and I think it's a big part of her her legacy, is that she creates such a well functioning group and gives these women such opportunities to prove themselves that nobody's. Nobody after World War II is going, ah, let's just get rid of it. They're going, these women are great, and we're going to go to war again, and we need them. So that's, I think, enough reason to do an episode on her. But that's not the end of her career. She loves politics, always has. And even though she'd been a pretty proud Southern Democrat, been very close to FDR, had been, you know, very part of this party, she will kind of shift her allegiance. And this is not unusual because there's one guy who emerges out of World War II, basically a hero to all Americans, and that's Dwight D. Eisenhower. And, you know, Eisenhower is a Republican, although for so long he eschews any sort of open acknowledgement or any real alignment with any party. But understandably, after World War II, Americans are clamoring for him to be president of the United States. You'll win a world war. People want you to lead the country. And it is not too surprising that she is going to very quickly be on the Ike train. She'd actually met Eisenhower when she was with Eleanor Roosevelt in England just before D-Day. So she was so impressed with his strategy, so impressed with his calm collected demeanor before this major event, that that was just the beginning of kind of this lifelong friendship and certainly admiration that she had for Eisenhower. I read that they bonded over smoking. Uh, that they were they were at some kind of formal event and they were waiting for something and they both, like I, Ike was a chain smoker, she was a pretty heavy smoker. Everyone smoked, it was the war, what are you gonna do? Uh, and they were waiting for some toast or something and they couldn't go out to like leave to have a smoke until it was over and like they caught each other's eye and Ike was like, are we gonna move this along or what? <laughs> Um, I have to imagine anyone who saw Eisenhower up close during the war was going to oh walk God. away saying that guy should run the country. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And so she is, I mean, pushing him to run pretty much yes. from the time the war ends. She is 
going to be on every Eisenhower election group, committee, fundraises, she campaigns. She is one of his most ardent, ardent supporters. And not too surprisingly, when he gets into the presidency and he has an opportunity to utilize her, he does. He appoints her to be the head of the Federal Security Agency. Now, that was technically not a cabinet position, but he saw her essentially as cabinet level leadership and invited her to sit in on cabinet meetings. This is only a few decades after Francis Perkins. There are still not a lot of women serving in cabinet positions. So it's still quite unusual to have a woman this high up, you know. So Frances Perkins is, we did a whole thing. She's the best. Um, she has done the, uh, finished as the first woman to serve in the presidential cabinet in 1945 with the death of Franklin Roosevelt. This is only eight years later and Ovita Culp Hobby will become the second woman to serve in a presidential cabinet. Eisenhower is going to create the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, which is now many other different things, uh, but it was called HEW, Health, Education, Welfare. And she becomes the first secretary to head it, only the second woman in American history to be in a president's cabinet and therefore in the presidential line of succession. Uh, and so she's going to create something essentially from nothing. Again. Like, again, right? Again. Social security, healthcare, medical research, land-grant college funding, educational exchange programs, and a whole lot more. One of her key decisions, she basically oversees the distribution of Jonas Salk's polio vaccine. So the polio vaccine has come in. It's become a big deal. It, we want to get it out. And she's going to oversee this. And it is controversial. There are people in government today, like Anthony Fauci, who take a lot of heat over vaccines. She took that much heat in the 1950s for the polio vaccine. It was very controversial. And there were a lot of people who weren't sure about it. And particularly having a woman as the face of this was really new for a lot of people. So she's going to do a whole lot and essentially create this entire cabinet level government agency from nothing, which is not an easy thing, I must say. <laughs> yeah, it's like, once again, she is called upon to create something from scratch. Eisenhower knows she can do it. He was well aware of mm -hmm. the work um, that she did with the wax and was well aware of how well the wax were administrated and formed. And he knows of her work on a state level, having worked on a lot of committees. Yet today, we would probably say the equivalent would be Health and Human Services, although, frankly, HEW covered so much more than HHS would do today. So and so she really is, has her hands in just about everything. And without getting into the weeds on kind of what's going on in the United States in the 1950s, there's a massive economic boom. We have the baby boom happening. So there are a lot more children, a lot more families. You've got veterans home that are dealing with health issues, dealing with the impact of serving in the war, we're massively expanding, right? We're having this huge boom of the suburban culture. And so what she is overseeing is basically the shaping of what we think of when we think of 1950s America, when we think about how the GI Bill sort of reshapes education and reshapes jobs. Uh, when we think about absolutely the polio vaccine, uh, this just game changer for public health for children. And she has to oversee all of that. And it's no secret to anyone that she's probably the hardest working member of Eisenhower's cabinet. A newspaper once joked that if she could figure out her job as head of the new agency, she'd be able to cut her work week hours down to 70. So if she could just kind of figure out what all this agency was going to do, she could really cut back. I mean, she is working to the bone. 
she's also like she restructures the social security payroll taxes so like the next time you get a pay stub and it says fica like what they take out for federal taxes that, that's partly restructured by obita culpabi it should say something that the department of health education and welfare are now three different departments there's health and human services there's department of education and then welfare is done by somebody completely different so these are like she's overseeing what are today three different cabinet level departments. So it's a lot and she's doing a lot of work. And again, she's in her forties at this point, she's doing it. However, she's going to resign partly because of the reaction to the polio vaccine, I think, but also because her husband was very ill at this point. Yeah, she will ultimately spend about two years kind of getting this department up and running. She is going to oversee massive, massive infrastructure builds, hospitals, schools. But the polio vaccine rollout is difficult for her. There was an incident known as the Cutter incident, and it is one of the worst. It's been described, I should say, by scholars as one of the worst biological disasters in American history. There was a laboratory, Cutter laboratory, and their polio Example, their vaccine was not good and caused illness and disablement and disability. And a number of children received the vaccine. And I will give uh, her a lot of credit. Not only does she weather that, uh, help to sort of reassure the American people that while that had happened with one sample of the vaccine, overall, the vaccine's very safe. She also knows that the buck stops here and she takes full credit for this failure in her within the purview of her department. So um, it definitely plays a role in her sort of stepping down because there is a sense to um, when things on this scale happen, right, that somebody has to take the ball and the heat and she does. But this doesn't mean that she just sits back on her laurels, right? She goes back to Houston to help care for her husband, but she also continues to serve as president and editor of the Houston Post. She oversees their Houston Post company. So now we're firmly in the TV age. So she's overseeing their television stations on um, continuing to do radio. She's very, very involved in the cultural life of Houston. She was basically one of the founders of the Houston Symphony Orchestra. She was on the board of several museums in Houston, including the Museum of Fine Arts, um, which is still there today. And she's going to continue, of course, a lot of her civic engagement as well, particularly geared towards children and veterans. And uh, I love her because she was just a tough lady. She's also not done with government service. Johnson, who's from Texas and knows her well, Johnson is going to appoint her on several task forces, including one to Vietnam. So she literally goes into a war zone at Johnson's request. She also is going to help to create PBS and NPR, public radio and public broadcasting system. So she's going to get involved with that, which is really ties in very well to her larger civic engagement and her arts and education and interest. So there's a lot. She does not slow down, really. Her husband passes away in 1964, but she just kind of keeps on going. And um, she lives to be 90, which is amazing. She loves to horseback ride and which is very Texas, I feel like, you know. Yeah, she loves horseback riding. She's in a number of um, accidents. She'll suffer a lot of broken bones that doesn't ever really stop her. You mentioned the plane crash earlier, but when you read the story of this plane crash, like she is in a crash. Her husband and the pilot are unconscious. Mm -hmm. She is going to pull them out of the plane. She's going to run 
to the nearest farmhouse, borrow a farmer's car, drive into town to get the ambulance. Ambulance is going to come pick up her husband and the pilot, both still unconscious. They're all going to go back into town to the hospital. And it's only when they get to the hospital that the doctor realizes that she was in the plane. Because <laughs> she's just like so together. And she's like, oh, these two men have been in a crash. They need help. And it's only after that, you know, they're getting medical attention that the doctor's like, and where were you? How did you, what happened? What'd you see? And she's like, I was in the plane. Right. That's amazing. And like, that is some like cool, cool head under pressure. If I've ever heard of it, I will also mention, and I think those of you listening from Texas know this very well, but her son goes on to also be Lieutenant governor of Texas for a long time, for Mm -hmm. almost 20 years. So she is kind of like, in many ways, I think sort of thought of as kind of this matriarch of Texas because she is alive during her son's entire career as lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. And so she will make appearances at a lot of governor events. Um, she's there at all of his swearing ins and inaugurations. And she is very key in encouraging women in Texas politics. She is going to be one of these women who is going to champion women like Katie Lee Hutchinson and Ann Richards. So women who will really go to kind of define Texas politics in the 80s and 90s. She's really there encouraging them and being an advocate for them, giving them platforms in her paper and on her radio stations, TV stations. So she continues to sort of remain this kind of figurehead for Texas politics well into her 70s and 80s, partially because of her son's role as lieutenant governor. I read that her son was the most powerful lieutenant governor in the history of Texas. Yes. And definitely the longest serving. Yeah, he's the longest serving. He he is exceptionally powerful. A lot of what is named a hobby around the city is actually named for Hobby, her son, not herself or her husband. Um, So it's actually named for William P. Hobby. So there's much named for him. There's the Hobby Center for the Performing Arts, for example. Um, So is the the airport named for their son? The airport, the the airport's named for the father. I am almost positive. Confusing. (laughs) Um, They're all, it's very confusing because they're literally all William. So it's like, come on. Um, well, it's William P. Hobby, so I feel like that is named for the son. Yeah, William P. Jr. is the son. Oh, yeah, so, so William P. is the his, senior, yeah. so the airport's named for the dad. But honestly, if people say Hobby Airport, you're really talking about, a, it's like a little dynasty, like a little family dynasty. But she she gets to sort of be this, because she lives such a long life, and she never really leaves the spotlight in Texas, at least. She sort of gets a chance to be this political figurehead. Fantastic. I love it. She's she kind of rules the roost in Texas and is very like she gets started young and never stops. Essentially, she lives into to be 90, um, dies in 1995. Yeah, it's incredible. Like she was alive when I was alive. And that is amazing to me. Of course, uh, you mentioned she's the first woman in the Army to receive the Distinguished Service Medal. There are several sites in and around Colleen that are named specifically for her. And that's where she grew up. That's where her family roots are. So there are schools and libraries and sites named for her. Here in Washington, D.C., though, she has a place where you can actually go. Two places. Oh, yeah, two places. But one place where you can go and see her name inscribed. And it's probably a place that many of you have visited. And that's our National World War II Memorial. If you visit the National World War II Memorial right on the National Mall. If you've been to the Memorial, you've been on one of our walking tours, hopefully, you know that inside the Memorial, there's a number of quotations from military and civilian leaders during the war. And she is the only woman quoted inside the Memorial. And her quote speaks to the way in which women 
had to chip in and, and play an equal role in this war in many ways, both at home, on the home front, and in the military service. But her quote speaks specifically to that aspect. And then what's the other place, Rebecca? The other place is the National Portrait Gallery. She has a, a portrait as part of the war in the National Portrait Gallery, which is amazing. It's really, really cool. In in the uh, National Portrait Gallery, you see her in her uniform, very much mm-hmm. represented as the head of the wax, as director of the wax. So you can uh, also see her portrait, which is typically on display. Most of the time, you will mm-hmm. see it on display at the Portrait Gallery. Uh, that is Avita Kolpavi, just an incredible life. And to be so accomplished and still be so modest, like... It's infuriating to me to an extent that she didn't write an autobiography because to have heard her life story from the horse's mouth. And again, you mentioned and listed off the number of people to which she was connected to. That would have been a barn burner of a book. Mm -hmm. But her modesty sort of prevailed. And the fact that despite all of these accomplishments and being at these key moments in so many places in American history and certainly in Texas history to um, never have really called attention to her own contributions is really remarkable. I um, I heard about her as I was Ubering home one night after a tour and they had this NPR on. It was this interview with this guy who was talking about her and her husband. And I was like, oh, this one was really fascinating. And where's that name familiar to me? And then I realized, oh, she's the quote in the World War II Memorial. And it's just to give you a sense like, She's quoted alongside Harry Truman and Franklin Roosevelt and Admiral Nimitz and Douglas MacArthur and Dwight Eisenhower, like on our memorial. She's the only woman to be quoted on our World War II memorial. So she was that level, like she knew all of those people uh, and was sort of at that level of success. And how she's not more famous is really amazing to me. <laughs> Probably she didn't want to be. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. It's, again, we can't attribute a lot to what she thought or felt. Normally, I'd love to have more direct quotes from her, but she didn't Mm -hmm. publish or write much about herself. And so much of what we have is written by um, sort of the next generation of women who come up behind her. But I would have loved to have known what it was like and and how she she felt about it, being sort of uh, right in the mix of all these big, powerful moments and among some of the most egotistical uh, men who have populated American history. Oh my gosh, I completely agree. Well, I love this. This is a fun one for me, obviously. Again, we'll put a few things in the show notes, including a couple YouTube clips that I'll give you some visual on just uh, how lovely she was, but also just give you a little visual on the span of her life. And uh, this is just part one of Women's History Month. We have another really good topic. Our next topic, without spoiling it, is a name that I am confident that every single person listening to this podcast knows their name, but probably doesn't really know a fraction of their life. And so I'm very excited to dig in next episode. So that's a little teaser. Yes. With a good DC connection. Super strong, excellent Mm -hmm. DC connections. Um, For those of you planning your spring trips, you can start putting these on your list of women's things to see. But it's a name, this will be the opposite of this, a name you definitely know but we're going to tell you all sorts of things you didn't know. We're going back to our roots, talking to you about somebody that like, this, they're famous, but here's why they really should be famous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As always, thank you, thank you, thank you to our patrons. Thank you to all of our listeners um, and everybody who comes out to support the podcast. If you have an idea, you want to pitch the pod, you can always email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com or hit us up on social media. We're at tourguidetell or tourguidetellall on pretty much all the major social media platforms. We definitely would love your ideas. We want to hear what you want to hear about. And of course, as you're playing planning your spring travel, check us out, dcbyfoot.com. We'd love to have you on a tour. We'd love to see you in person. If you like us on the pod, you'll like us even better 
in person. And uh, we will see you next episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Bye.